Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome back to Tech People. This week, we're coming to an end to our gaming series, but I hope you enjoyed as much as I have. What an amazing industry, and it's only just getting bigger. This week, I'm delighted to have Colin Craig on the show, who is currently the creative director of Toddman Interactive. Prior to this, he was CEO of Star Stable Entertainment and also co-founder at Razor Secure. Now, from listening to the last few weeks, the common theme we learned from our guests was it's hard to break into the gaming market due to the competition, the size of the investment required. However, in saying that, we also learned if you find the right niche, there is a massive opportunity. Therefore, I'm delighted to have Colin on the show today to talk about his experience of niche sectors in the gaming market. So firstly, we're going to learn a bit more about Colin uh, and his experience and how he got into the gaming market. Then we're going to move into the whole area of niche gaming and how his experience of building niche games, what he learned from that, and the size of market and the opportunities, and also what does the future hold. So welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you for the, the kind introduction, Ken. Yeah, it's uh, been an interesting journey, that's for sure. Excellent. Uh, Looking forward to hearing more and sharing with our listeners. So yes. let's start about, just tell us a bit about you and your background and how you got into gaming. Well, it's, it's interesting how I ended up in gaming. Ken, I think it's very different back then. I started working in gaming in 2004, where you know now Stockholm University has a university degree in kind of game development. It's very mainstream. At the time when I started working in games, I'd graduated from university with a biochemistry degree and then discovered that it wasn't particularly a field I wanted to be involved in when, uh, well, let's just say it was a little dry. For my needs, but that I moved to Sweden after marrying a a lovely Swedish girl I met on vacation. Uh, so that's how you ended up in Sweden. Yes, it's a very very common story. Believe <laughs> me. Uh, we we started a little club for you know displaced men in the south of Sweden, kind of as a joke, having met two or three of these two or three of these men uh, at a language course. Mm, and okay. by the time I moved to Oslo in. Uh, 2004, so just a couple years later, routinely there would be 100 men showing up at this bar every week (laughs) on Wednesday night. It was an interesting network. But uh, a friend of mine ended up, uh, he was uh, actually an educated uh, lawyer by trade, but had a similar experience where he recognized that, you know, he he loved making games, he loved the creative side of it. And uh, he'd mentioned to me that, you know, hey, Colin, you know, I you grew up playing games, you know, the, the old version of these things on, you yeah. know, like old Commodore 64 yes, and this yes, kind of stuff yes. and the Atari and Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, it says, you know, we have a lot in common. I'm really into this experience working in Norway. You c- should come and meet me at, at Funcom, which is, you know, the, the producer of, uh, you know, Anarchy Online and Age oh, of yes, Conan okay. and The Secret World and, and a lot of uh, smaller titles before that. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I don't really know what to expect. And we're going into the office for the first time and literally being surprised that they had curtains. 
I was <laughs> being born in the seventies. I was, <laughs> I was so kind of my perception of what a video game company was mm. was basically a bunch of guys in a basement somewhere, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was a very kind of professional, streamlined, with desks and curtains, wow. and you know they had like an alarm code on the door and like a staff lunchroom. It was it was all very professional, and I was kind of blown away by what was Impressive. there. But coming from the outside, I've been working in uh, kind of IT project, you know, management and staffing before I moved to, to Sweden okay. uh, with a company that was eventually acquired by CGI in Canada. And you don't really have, like, with the product, games in general, you don't look at them and understand the weight and depth of producing these titles. As a consumer, for the most part, we don't understand that when we, when we look at a game like God of War, for example, we don't understand that this is the effort of, you know, 150 people over five years wow. uh, and investments sort of, you know, way north of $100 million to make this kind of title. We don't have that understanding. It's incredible. There's, there is a, a thought that when we look at film, right, mm. and you, you watch, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger, everything explodes movie. Yes. There's an understanding that, you know, wow, it costs like $100 million to make a movie. But we all yeah. sit there and we think, well, $20 million is for Arnold. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. $10 million is probably for the female star yeah. in the film yeah. who should be paid more, right? And we think it all disappears in kind of people. But with games, there are no game designers, game developers at the head of projects who are being paid $20 million to make a game. So it's, it's all a group of, you know, professionals are perhaps paid, aren't paid exactly what they're worth, but have so right. much passion for what they do that they're in there and they're, they're fully committed. I'm sure that, you know, at some point you might have had some discussions with someone about, uh, you know, the, the crunch problem in the mm, game industry that we've all yes. been working against for the last while. That's the challenge, um, isn't it? It is, but I ended up being really fortunate in my brother-in-law at the time okay. basically said, no, you would be good for this. And I said, I, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> you know, I, I've played a lot of games. I know kind yeah. of what's good and what's bad, but he's like, no, you've got to sit down and play them and take notes and think about why they are the way they are. And, and he gave me a list of like 20 games. It says, play all of these like it's a job right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go through these from a design perspective, a customer perspective. You know, what would you do differently? You know, what makes this fun? What would you change if cool. you could change? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I went through that experience and it was really interesting. I played games for four months, like it was a job oh, uh, before, before getting a job interview with Funcom. And thankfully, you know, my, my personality didn't terrify them. So <laughs> they were willing to give me a chance. I can't imagine there's many people who at the end of an interview, you know, have a, you know, a panel of three people and, you know, the, we'll call it the person in charge who's you know, right. still a friend at this point says, you know, I've got one more question. We think this will be great, but Colin, do you ever shut up? Like, honestly, I, and of course I said, you know, well, if we're being honest, I'm going to say, no, no, I never shut up. I'm terribly sorry, but this is what you're going to get. At least you know what you're getting up in front. Abs absolutely. Yep. No, there's not going to be any surprises. This was definitely in the brochure, so to speak. <laughs> but uh, getting an opportunity to work for a company like that, I say I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate. I'm incredibly mm. lucky. When in the future, we would post, post kind of job openings within the company right. from just an, an entry-level QA position to like a design role. Funcom at the time was the only you know, game developer or AAA game 
developer of any scale whatsoever in Norway. So it's a, a national region, highly educated, lots of technical people, lots of people with dreams of making this kind of game, this kind of profession. Okay. And you work there or you work nowhere was essentially the way things would work. So if we would put out a, an ad for any role, we would get 300 applications. And there would be a significant list of people there who could have been just amazing, but there was you know one role and 300 spaces. Mm. So I was very lucky to get in there before the concept of uh, you know proper education and yeah. preparation. We hired one of the, the first people out of the Stockholm University game development program. Like we were shocked and surprised that one existed. <laughs> and when she arrived, she was miraculously good. She basically redefined what we would be looking for in candidates from then on. She immediately raised the standard of everyone around her just by being in the room. She ended up working for, uh, for Dice wow. here in, in Stockholm as well. Amazing, amazingly talented uh, young lady. But uh, it's, and, Tragically, there aren't as many you know, amazingly talented young ladies in the game industry as we would like. Uh, no, you know, if anyone is, if anyone is listening to this, you know, wow, is there opportunity for you here? We badly want you to apply. Like, do not be uh, you know, intimidated or have any thoughts that this won't be good. It is fun, and you are welcome <laughs> and needed. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, so I was uh, working within that company during what was to a certain extent a bit of the dark ages of video games i was in that company for almost 4 years before the position of a producer actually existed within the organization the producer role is kind of an ex, uh, you know you know everybody's expecting to see that in the credits of a film yeah who is the exactly. producer of this film it's a big deal at that point in time the producer role didn't actually exist within game development so there was an interesting situation where the creative element, you know, the guy who sits there and, you know, suddenly sits up in the middle of the night, you know, in a sweat and says, everything should be blue and explode. That guy was the same person who was also controlling your budget and scheduling. So it made for an, a very unbalanced and, you know, crunch-tastic experience where, you know, everyone was clearly aligned and then everything would just shift to the left, like 180 <laughs> degrees. You would never know what was coming. So there was, there was an enormous amount of passion and creativity in the yeah. industry at that time, but it was, it was way out of balance with respect to, you know, let's have a deadline. Oh, wait, we've decided creatively to add, you know, 50% more work because it would be cool. <laughs> and the only way we're going to actually be able to deliver on this is everyone just, you know, everyone's got to pull together to get this done. All in. Yep. And everyone would. As a producer, you know, kind of, uh, I remember speaking with some people a while back and they said, as a producer, you know, what are you going to, what are you doing at a video game company? And I said, well, as a producer, you know, there is no one answer to that question. It's like, whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to make your team perform and help everybody, you know, deliver to the best of their ability. And if that means, you know, it's a busy period. So the lead coder who, doesn't really have time right now to go home and walk his dog at lunch, you're going to go home at lunch and walk his dog, right? Because it's going to make things that much more efficient. I'm sorry, this is probably a little more stream of consciousness than you wanted, but I'm, I'm hoping no, no, it's, it's enjoyable. But yes, the industry's been evolving. Scrum agile process, uh, that's kind of you know a standardized word at this point for project management, actually developed inside the game industry. The lean 
business process also just was developed inside the game industry. Really? So, oh, yeah, it was the uh, people behind uh, Roblox, I believe. Oh, yes. Who were My behind? Kids love uh, that Roblox. Uh, is it Roblox or was it IMView? It's one Not of the sure. two. I think it might okay. be Roblox. Okay. But yeah, it's sort of entertainment for for kids. This lean startup yeah. uh, process. But there's been a lot of uh, kind of growing up within the industry, which you know over time was going to have to happen. Because you know, if, if it's two guys in a basement and they're making an Atari game and they've, they're going to do it in six months with two of them, then you can be a little more free and creative. If you're producing a title that is you know, $200 million, there's not going to be a great deal of you know, kind of creative risk here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very fortunate to be involved at a time where the amount of creative freedom and uh, ability to try different things and to build and lead teams in a real kind of you know round table sort of fashion was very much available. The leadership at Funcom at the time, it was, yeah. you know, you have risen to the point where you are running one of these projects. And now what we're amazingly going to do is, you know, you give us your requirements. You know, okay. how many people do you think you need? What is it you're planning on delivering during this year? And we no will pressure. try and give you we will try and give you the resources that you need to achieve what you feel, you know, your players in your online, you know, MMO, RPG, what they need to, you know, want to continue playing and to continue paying subscriptions. It's a very clean operation, which is, you know, we give you fun. And at the end of the month, you want to continue to play and have fun. So you give us another $15. (laughs) So, it was very clean at that time okay. where there was no sense of, uh, you know, I'm going to create microtransactions. I'm going to create pain points in the product where you're going to be tempted to, you know, give me $5 so that you don't have to do that annoying thing or there's right. that part yeah. of the game that irritates you. I think it's important to mention at this point that I'm to a certain extent to blame for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, um, uh, Colin. Thank yes, you. <laughs> it's uh, kind of my fault. We noticed earlier on that we we had this mental theory that it would be a much easier to get people to give us $1 20 times yeah, than to okay. get people to give us $20 once. So we implemented the first Western market microtransactions in that product, Anarchy Online, with the idea being that, okay, we don't want anything that's going to disturb gameplay. We don't want to have anything that's going to disturb balance in terms of, you know, player versus player, mm. you know, kind of challenges or accomplishments. We just want something fun. So we, we started out with just the vehicles, cosmetics, hoverboards, and we were very surprised to see the revenue of the entire product go up sort of 20% overnight when we did Amazing. it and stay there. And at that point, once kind of the Pandora's box had been opened mm. to a certain extent, there was literally no way you no were going back. to be able to put it back in. And from then we went on to, you know, we'll call it other microtransaction offerings. We were also the first company to do free to play. There was a, an article was that about with? us. That was Anarchy Online. Wow. And that was in, I think, 2004, 2005, possibly, where at the time, the idea that you would put your game out there for free mm. uh, and reasonably for us, what it ended up being was almost like a free trial. The original release of the game was totally free with Initially, we said it'll be free for the next year because yeah. we didn't want to be, you know, kind of 
boxed in. And you know, anytime you would arrive at a convention and you said, hey, I'm here to answer questions and someone says, you said it'd be free and then you changed your mind. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't want to, you can picture that guy in the red yeah, shirt yeah. going, you know, is this a joke? Right. Um, <laughs> we didn't want to put ourselves in that position. So initially we just said it'll be free for this year. And there was so much content and so much to do in the product. But when you would get deeper into the experience, you would recognize that if I want to be competitive, if I want to go to kind of the cool places, if I mm. want to do player versus player, I need to buy the expansions. And to buy the expansions, then you had to become a subscriber. Yeah, so fantastic there was, Yeah, but at the time, and it's somewhat common at this point, and as yes. much as you know, comparing Anarchy Online, which is an incredibly hardcore stats driven there's like 200 different stats that you can adjust and tweak in anarchy online i don't think there's that many i, I think it might be 77 or something it's been a while okay but there's a lot more than you can easily wrap your head around and to compare that to a product like star stable seems like a strange comparison but there we see a very similar business model which is you want to come in and, and play the game there's a fair amount that you can come in and you can do for free but very much like in, you will call it the hardcore MMO in Star Stable, you know, people would come in and they would play, there would be a certain amount of content, and they would stand at a gate and watch, you know, fantastic other players in amazing outfits ride by on amazing horses to that castle you can see in the distance. <laughs> oh, but you can't go there unless you're a subscriber. Right. So, you know, you joke about there being a paywall. Well, we had a pay fence, right? With a pay gate. Give them a taste. Absolutely. So it's the same sort of mechanic, just on a smaller scale, but for a different audience. Yeah, but a fantastic um, opportunity. Yes, yeah, so, so with Star Stable, and this is where you really, was that your first introduction into kind of niche gaming? Well, all of the products for Funcom, I would categorize as niche. Ah, okay. um, like when you say like the most popular genre for games, is it's typically a fantasy setting. Everyone right. likes their kind of Lord of the Rings with their, their orcs and goblins and swords. but when you get down a step, then it's like science fiction. A science fiction is not nearly as popular as fantasy environments. And then if you go further down the chain, you get into horror, which is, you know, now it's a percentage of a percentage of a percentage. But we were, we were an online game played with other people, which is a niche in itself. Because okay. uh, even within the, the studio I'm working at right, right now, we have a, a senior producer. He loves games. He's you know, totally engaged in the titles he's playing, but he refuses to play games that have other people in them, right? Okay. That might be a profession-driven thing. It's like, I deal with other people's stuff all day as a producer. The last thing I want to do is deal with other people's stuff when I'm relaxing. <laughs> Fair so enough. He, yeah, he refuses to play games with other people. So this being an incredibly hardcore title where, like, Ken, if you were to sit down and say, I want to create the best character compared to everybody else in this game, and you started today, you might be done in two years. Wow. Maybe. The number of aliens you would have to kill would be, you know, probably three or 400,000 aliens uh, to mm -hmm. get to that point. And that's just one small segment of, you know, the mountain to climb there. So there's literally as much to do as you could possibly ever it's want incredible. to do. It's very niche. Because it's incredibly niche, this is a title that was launched in 2001. And, you know, this summer, I believe it's, it's turned 19 last month. That's amazing. So this is, this is a game where people played the game, met their future partners in the game, had children, not in the game, but they've had children, <laughs> but they would get married in the game. I attended a lot of marriages. In no the game. way. Oh, yes. Yep. I got a certain amount of uh, trouble from 
my wife at the time where it'd be like, you know, a beautiful sunny afternoon. And I'd be like, no, I'm sorry. I have to, I have to go to a wedding for like an hour. She's like for an hour. Where is this wedding? It's in the game. She's like, are you kidding me right now? It's like, you're going to interrupt our Saturday to go to an online in-game wedding. Yes, I am. I was invited. So that kind of a niche product where it's like this online life, it's very, very niche. It's been running for 19 years at this point. Obviously, it doesn't have the subscriber levels that it did at its peak. Okay. But when you talk about long tail revenue over time, you know this is a product that is, fills a very specific place. No one is ever going to make something exactly like it ever again. When you're making a product, nobody on the business side of things would sit there and say, well, if I'm forecasting out the profitability of this title, I'll just take this, you know, this is the first two years. And then we'll tail this revenue off over the next 19 years. No one would do that ever. So it's catering to that niche, this very stats-driven type product created this special thing where people could always be chasing just that one more point in that one more applicable skill. And because it's stats-based as well, people can spend months putting together a spreadsheet of how they're going to build their character and how they're going to progress it over time. And then have fun with making these these small progressions and these small improvements over time on the way to this final ultimate build they planned. There's Incredible. websites that help you plan out how you're going to do this. This is very specific and niche, wow. but it's a niche, you know, audience type. It's a very specific person who is going okay. to be able to play this game or be interested in it. Being associated with that game and working with that game from a personnel standpoint has been amazing for me as a person, as for someone who is hiring other people, Mm. because the detail-oriented nature of that player base makes it so that these people are amazing employees, amazing technical people. Anyone who's able to do end-game gameplay in that game, I really do feel that I could give them any kind of task and you know know that it would be managed within an inch of its life (laughs) the whole way through. By the time I left, there wasn't anybody working on the project who had not been a player of the game. So basically, the niche community that played the game were also the niche community making the game now. You know, the fans were now the owners in a way. (laughs) Fantastic, though. Yeah, it's fantastically interesting. But Star Stable, again, a similar, you know, kind of niche idea. It wasn't, we're going to sit there and we're going to make a game. So obviously, we should should try and make a war-themed game with guns where people run around and shoot each other. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> like every single other company in the world yeah. at the same time. This problem is so much worse now with the, the Epic, the Unreal Engine. It's, okay. it's an amazing tool, but getting your first, you know, kind of getting a shooter up and running they give you so much help to do that, that if you wanted to start kind of a game project and you're going to make a shooter, you could have a rudimentary shooter up and running in like hours because wow. they've given you so much. Your character runs around. It has animations. It shoots a gun. There's projectiles. You can jump. It's registering. You're hitting things. It's so much of the barrier to entry is gone that now we can see even smaller studios in the going through the effort of making their shooters. but. Huh. It used to be a lot a lot harder and a lot more difficult. It's still difficult to deliver something that's good. But the original owners who were putting this concept together, Star Stable had initially been like a game that was on CDs that would get delivered like twice a year. 
with these okay. little pony magazines for <laughs> girls. So you would buy a subscription and then, you know, twice a year in the mail with the magazine, the, the little, you know, card comic yeah. book almost that was full of content basically for that demographic. They would also get this little CD that they could put into their little computers. And regardless of how bad the computer was, it was <laughs> going to run that the spec was really low. And there would be like a, a full story-based adventure where you would ride around on your horse and do little quests and follow through stories as if they were the stories in the comic book. Amazing. But how, did was, they, yeah, sorry to, but how did they come up with that concept? I mean, I think the original story was uh, written by one of the, the primaries at the, at the company. Okay. He wasn't there when I worked there. And I've got to, you know, I can't take kind of any kind of credit for the genius of doing this. Mm-hmm. Because at the time I was looking to relocate back to Sweden, uh, we'd had a we'll call it interesting year in Montreal. Okay. During which we discovered that childcare in French Canada and childcare in Norway were very different animals. In Norway, my kids would get up in the morning and we would walk them to like it was almost a museum, like an outdoor museum with buildings they brought from all <laughs> over the world or all over Norway anyway, with, uh, you know, and there were horses there and, and, you know, old breeds of cows that used to be raised. And and I'd take them into this museum and then they would spend the day walking around what is a tourist attraction and, you know, petting kittens that had been born and going to see baby cows. And and we moved to Montreal and it was called, you know, they're going to be in this room all day. Mm. Uh, they're not allowed to run if they're in there because you know someone might hit their head on a table or something and we get sued. And the cost of that experience, which was kind of you know, less than desirable, yeah. was more than my wife was going to earn at a full-time <laughs> job. Yeah. And we had two children, so it was, <laughs> it was uh, frightening. Yeah, so, so it was an easy decision to get back. It was an easy decision. And I was first the owners reached out to me and they said, we need someone with this, you know, deep MMO experience, this okay. online multiplayer world kind of experience to, you know, to look at our game. And I was like, I'd be happy to evaluate it because initially it was just, we want an evaluation on this from an investment perspective. You know, if we're, if we're crazy, even pursuing this and it'd been a friend had asked me to do it as a favor because he didn't have time. Yeah. And I sort of said, okay, well, absolutely. Like I can evaluate this for you. I will do you a favor. And then they said, yeah, it's a pony game. And I was like, oh, God, it's a pony game. <laughs> like, I, they asked for the favor first and the type of game and didn't tell me what kind of, kind of game it was uh, until after I'd agreed to, to look at it. Never. And it was one of those things, Ken, I don't know if you ever run into these kind of tasks where you know you have to do it. And amazingly enough, every other job on your list gets done first. Priority, yes, you know, your yes, yes. Like that, my house was vacuumed within an inch of its life. Everything was, <laughs> everything, the CDs and the rack were in alphabetical order, right? And then yeah. I'm downloading this pony game and thinking, oh, God, I better get some coffee first. Yeah. I can't imagine this is, I don't even know what I'm going to see here. And it was amazing. Right. I, I was logging into this thing and it had kind of the fidelity of like World of Warcraft, but it was yeah. clearly made for you know, a young female audience. And yeah, what, the what horses the were amazing. I mean, they were well, the initial target was sort of 8 to 13-year-old girls. Okay. Right? Was the initial target for the product. And looking at this thing, I don't know how they even managed to do it, 
let alone they managed to make this whole thing with like a team of like five guys wow. uh, basically sweating away in this uh, in this little studio in in Stockholm. All of the business processes, all the customer systems, all of the business stuff you need to actually run a game like this were obviously you know completely and utterly missing. So a big part of my job was to actually kind of establish this. But from a game perspective, what they'd made was incredible. When we look at something like World of Warcraft, uh, that's one of the, the most fascinating things about the game industry in general is that every time we think, no, it's full, right? There isn't a whole other audience to kind of discover at this point, right? Yes. We're wrong. <laughs> like, like, only in the game industry, and I don't know if any of your other guests have spoken about this, mm. could you have like Electronic Arts being the biggest game company in the world? And they're huge. And, yeah. you know, so many studios and so many products and just dedicated fan bases. And then you have a company like Zynga pop onto the scene. And within the space of like less than five years, Zynga is earning more money than Electronic Arts as yeah. a whole, or at least is you know we'll call it on the public exchange on the stock market. Yeah. Their valuation is larger than that of Electronic Arts. And amazingly enough, it's not like this competitor rises up and then Electronic Arts is like, oh no, they're stealing all of our money and all of our customers. <laughs> they're not. It's what it's they've done is they found a completely different sector within the market and they have taken all of or found a new source of all of this revenue and all these customers and all these business. So Electronic Arts didn't hurt from the creation of, of Zynga. Quite the opposite. They brought a whole new generation, a whole new segment of gamers into the, into the common market. Um, and World of Warcraft is another great example of that. Like where I was firmly in the MMO business at that time. And the kind of the creative head of, of the company went to the, the big conference that year and, you know, came back and he's standing in a room in front of, you know, all of the employees. And he's like, I've seen World of Warcraft. And, you know, you could hear a pin drop in this, world, <laughs> in this room and everyone's afraid to breathe. And he's like, and it's, it's amazing. It's so good. It's amazing. And basically someone had to tell him to be quiet because, you know, he's terrifying everybody. <laughs> but when that game came out, what we were worried was going to happen was that Everybody would stop playing EverQuest. Everyone would stop playing Anarchy Online. Everyone would stop playing all of these other online games, and everyone only would play World of Warcraft. That didn't happen. Everybody kept their accounts in the, these other games like RuneScape and everything else. And then they also played World of Warcraft, but then would come back to play their, their old favorite old titles. But what yeah. World, World of Warcraft did was... It didn't cannibalize the market of, you know, these are all the MMO players. What it did was create a market of 30 million more of these people who would consider playing these games. The games were designed before. They were very niche. They were very hardcore. There's articles about this in the past, but people would go on EverQuest raids that would start at, you know, 8 o'clock on a Friday night, and it would take all weekend. And People in charge of these groups of 100 people going through these dungeons and stuff would have to say, okay, now we are all breaking for six hours of sleep. <laughs> you know, be back at exactly this time so we can proceed as a group. This was niche. What World of Warcraft did was said, you know, this kind of game is fun, but, you know, some people can't commit that kind of time. Um, yeah. So it needs to be accessible. It needs to be straightforward. If you want to play by yourself, 
you know, just log in for an hour and play the game. You should be able to make progress in an hour and have fun and want to come back and do it again. There's still the social element. There's still the the bigger content in there that people will want to do together, but there needs to be like a lower light version of this that is not, you know, calling in sick to be able to play your game because that's the amount of time it takes. I think that's becoming so, more mainstream now, isn't it? Because I see that absolutely that each game's like there's an end. You put Fortnite, you Fortnite at the Roblox so There's all there's an end. now. you can start a new game, but there is ends where you can get people actually absolutely. to step away. And it's and it was somewhat ironic that I ended up working with this kind of game because I, I have a, a younger brother. He's ten years younger than me. Bless him. Okay. <laughs> and I watched him playing EverQuest when I was around you know, 22, 23. Right. And my parents were away, right? I think I was actually 25, 26. And I had a big party. I can't get <laughs> too much trouble from my parents at this point, right? I'm, it's been too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The statute of limitations has gone away. But <laughs> I had a lot of people there, a lot of fun. The Budweiser bikini team was at my house. <laughs> and my 15-year-old brother, who could, you know, theoretically have a beer, and take part in the party. He was in the kitchen because that's where the internet was at that uh, point. Okay, yes. Uh, he was in the kitchen playing EverQuest, and we couldn't get him to stop because he was healing. <laughs> and that terrified me to the point where I didn't try any of these online games for like another, you know, three four years <laughs> at all. The addiction. Like that kind of well, the addiction stories are pretty pretty frightening. Oh, that's incredible. A, I mean, same. A casual approach to gaming, a casual approach to entertainment has definitely been in the benefit of these kind of games. Star Stable is, I think, still unique to a certain perspective in that they have content that kind of unboards customers on purpose. There's clear sessions. Like if a World of Warcraft expansion comes out, generally there's kind of a a process where people want to see who finishes it first. Right. Where it'll be released on a Friday, and then there'll be you know someone putting up a screenshot of standing okay. on top of the mountain or holding all the final gear or you know standing over the corpse of the final boss within a week, right? <laughs> yeah. Star Stable, the way that that was built, we recognized that we didn't really want that kind of engagement to use a good word engagement okay. <laughs> for younger users, and we didn't want that kind of fight to be happening every day. If you know, if you're a parent. Yeah. And your 10-year-old child does not want to stop playing. It is not any fun for anyone involved. Yes. So it was built so that after you'd made it a certain distance through the story, there was pieces built into the story that would be a natural stop point for the day. A good example would be, you know, hey, you know, we've sent your order to that farm and they're going to deliver the letter tomorrow. And you go, okay, tomorrow. And then you click on the guy again, and the guy would say, what are you doing? Can you come back tomorrow. And we really, we literally mean come back, back tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> yes. So instead of there being the, you know, the little question mark or yeah. you know, little exclamation mark over the quest NPC that's quite common in some of these games at this point, mm. we had a clock. Ah, so you would see that and be like, ah, that means come My back time. tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the players and the kids and the adults to a certain extent would understand that this is not, there's nothing I can do to make this go faster. Maybe this is a good time for me to call it a day. This is a comfortable yeah, place right. to turn it off. I can still ride around and socialize, but there's something for me to look forward to tomorrow. So with that title, 
unlike all these other games out there, you could say, you know, hey, Colin, how much, you know, how much game is there? How many days of content do your users have? You can yeah. be, oh, there's, there's 76 days of content. I know exactly how many days a user can be involved with the product and how long it will take. That's because it was, built, it was built with that in mind. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was very interesting at yeah, the time. It's really interesting, Colin. Really, I mean, brilliant. I'm just conscious of the time here because we don't have a whole lot of time left. But in your experience of niche gaming, I mean, for people out there that are approaching this now, and how can they find that niche market and go about developing it? Could you share some pointers with us in terms of your experience and how you go about doing that? Well, I think what you want to do when you're, we'll call it doing research, into your you know, possible niche target okay. is you want to look and see where the passion is. And you want to see that there is, there is a group of users that are super excited for that product. And perhaps you know, in a perfect world, in the perfect case, you're looking for that group that has not, that's not been paid attention to, that's been ignored. Okay. And for, we'll call it your big, you know, shiny card-carrying example of that, Star Stable is an excellent example. There had not been an MMO, World of Warcraft, for girls made. That demographic had been completely and utterly ignored. Right. And the horse kind of community... The research here in Sweden suggests that you know it's one of the top three sports in the country. So the idea that there wouldn't be a football game, we have FIFA, right? There yeah. wouldn't be like American football is you know Madden. These are huge licenses. Mm. So to think, hey, what's number three on the list? Oh, look, it's it's horses. It's are are there games produced for this? There is not. Wow. And to find a niche like that and. Initially, when I heard about the concept of let's make World of Warcraft for girls, I have to admit, I kind of laughed a little. But then when you sit there and you actually think about it, then you're like, it's like this blinding moment where like, oh my God, does everyone know? (laughs) (laughs) So niche products like Star Stable, here is the audience. It's determined. It's underserved. It's starving for content. It clearly, you know, wants, wants this title. They exist. Niches like, I don't know if anyone else has mentioned Farming Simulator, but everyone wants to talk about Farming Simulator, right? This is one of the most successful, repeatable selling titles that's out there. You know, new tractors, new environments, (laughs) new crops. And there is a lineup of dedicated niche fans waiting for these things to be produced every year. That's a wonderful title. So doing the research on your audience, doing the research on the products. I think first off, it's looking for what are people passionate about? Like, what are people interested in in general? Where is the product for these people? I'm working on one right now. I can't talk about it, but okay. it's similar where I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm going, people spend millions of dollars on this every year. There's huge web rings about this all over the place, but okay. there's no title for this at all. I had one of the people from this uh, this group reach out to me and be like, you know, we can't participate in our activity right now because of, of COVID. It's horrible. We can't do our thing anymore. It's like someone should make a game. And I was like, well, someone must have. And I'm looking around and no one has. So I, I, I'll be very excited about sharing this later. But, you know, awesome. yeah. the first hints of it are here, Ken. Cool. But uh, finding cool. that group that's passionate, finding that product sector. 
throwing another shooter into the mix is just throwing another shooter into the mix. Okay. This is a, sh- a surefire way for your your studio to get engaged in competition out of your weight class. Yeah. Companies like Blizzard. Blizzard I spent have... many years making a, a shooter title. And after multiple years of development, and I can only imagine what budget, they said, we're not releasing this. It's not the best of its genre. It's not really offering something new outside of you know what's, what's available. So mm-hmm. they canceled it. So uh, unless you want to compete with those guys, You've got to basically sit back and examine your niche and figure out that hole and find a way to be excited about delivering to that group of customers who really want that experience that you know people have ignored. I mean, it's a great opportunity, but it sounds better. I mean, there's a lot of niches out there. So. Oh, it's fantastic. And it doesn't have to be when you're talking about financial success as a game producer, okay. right? It doesn't have to be... When you talk niche, now this is not going to be the game that's played by everybody in the world at the same time. It doesn't necessarily have to be Pokemon Go. Right. It can be something that's you know not for everybody. Star Stable was a, a game for for horse girls, right? Mm-hmm. And there are enough horse girls that they could have you know tens of millions of registered users over a period of years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be Fortnite. It can be something that's a little you know narrower focus. But then you're capturing an audience that's underserved, and then they're going to play your game for 19 years, as opposed to be you're the flavor of the month in this specific competitive space, and you're going to be the flavor of the month for X number of months. And then if you manage to keep these people as a user group for a period of you know two years, three years, four years, you've been incredibly clever. Like if we take Fortnite as an example, or better yet, we take PUBG as an example. PUBG comes out. It's taken the world by storm. It is the biggest game. It is a battle royale. You run around, collect equipment, shoot other people, get better equipment. Hopefully, you're the last one at the end. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. This is the idea behind the game. And Fortnite looks at what they're doing and goes, hey, we can do that too. Mm. And the fortunes of uh, PUBG, I'm sure they're they're still doing very well, but they're not on the scale of Fortnite. And now there is everybody and their cousin is making the battle royale games. Being in the gaming space, I've been, you know, I've had to look at a, quite a few battle royale pitches over the last three years. <laughs> and, yeah. and thankfully, we haven't really decided to make one too. Okay, cool. Uh, we're trying to focus in on the key experiences that can be shared by niche audiences. People are waiting for that title in that specific area. So we know who our customer is. And it's not a, a giant wager on, for some reason, our you know, product X is going to be better than everyone else's product X. Yeah. Very yep. interesting. Very interesting, Colin. And very exciting. I'll be honest with you. But it's just briefly, so we have to, we have to finish up now. What does the future hold for you? I mean, where to next? Well, for me, I'm focusing on, on that new niche product that okay. I'm very excited about. Like I said, I, I can't unfortunately discuss it right now. And the details of how we're going to produce it are, of course, a little bit under wraps at the moment as well. Cool. But I'm looking forward to you know continuing some of the work with the the Toadman group as well. There's some fantastic Great. products in the works there. I'm not sure which ones were mentioned previously, but like parody games, there haven't been virtually any of those produced over the last ten years. Okay. So the the idea of producing one of those for a group of fans that would you know find some humor and enjoyment in something that's not you know giant scale production, just something that's good solid entertainment that's going to be fun to produce. 
I'm very much looking forward to getting those things done and uh, moving forward with some more interesting niche ta- niche titles. Brilliant. And, and these Sorry. fan bases are hilarious and they're <laughs> wonderful to work with. Just like going well, I, into a sector where your yeah. your fans are, you know, just so engaged and happy and excited about what you're doing and they want to be a part of it is a fantastic, you know, way to really enjoy your work environment as well. Yeah, I'm jealous. I mean, the variety, the different sectors that you work in. I mean, every it's just constantly changing, you know, by the sounds of it. Yeah, the game industry is is completely bizarre. But it's you know, being having been in this industry for so long at this point, mm-hmm. often within kind of meetings with, you know, we'll call it newer people. You can have a very serious meeting. And just to give an example, you're standing in front of a room of people, room full of staff, and you say, okay, there's a serious problem. The dragons are not killing people fast enough in the game. <laughs> and, and you have to, you know, people will take that very seriously and you go, okay, I want everybody to stop for a moment and mentally appreciate what you do and that our biggest problem and the big issue that we have to deal with today is that the dragons are killing people too fast. It's wonderful. And there's <laughs> nothing like it. I'm really grateful oh, to be sorry. in it. Yeah. Listen, uh, for our listeners, because uh, I'm sure people will want to get in touch and reach out here. How can we get in contact you? Best way? Well, I'd say the best way would be, you know, I guess you can send me a message on Twitter. Okay. I've, I'm on there. I'm not posting pictures of cats all the time, <laughs> but generally I'll respond. And I guess I could be contacted through uh, the email at, at Toadman. Okay, cool. uh, if you reach out to Toadman, they'll pass it on to me. Fantastic, Alan. Listen, thank you so much for your insights. Really great to chat with you today. Thank you, Ken. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.